You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, I have a major thought leader in the space, and that's Mr. Nick Carter. Nick has written numerous articles on Bitcoin. Some of my favorites were the impact on Bitcoin energy consumption and ESG, how Bitcoin is a peaceful revolution, and how Bitcoin has the most robust settlement of assurances. And these are just to name a few. On today's show, though, we cover a range of topics. We talk about the global macro situation. We talk about Nick's thoughts on policies moving forward. And we also talk about Nick as a venture capitalist and what his thoughts are with Jack Dorsey's recent comments about VCs having a conflict of interest when it comes to Web 3.0. We cover these things and many other topics. So without further delay, sit tight and get ready for my interview with Nick Carter. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Nick Carter. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Preston. Thank you. Long overdue for us to have a conversation. This is long overdue, Nick. I have no idea how it's taken me this long to uh, get you on the show, but I'm glad that you have made time. This is where I want to start this off. We're getting ready to start 2022. In fact, whenever this uh, airs, it is going to be the start of 2022. What is your general sentiment of Bitcoin fundamentally where we're at? Do you see it as a positive? There's people out there saying that the community is, is getting toxic. But at the same time, you're seeing like all this progress happening fundamentally. So like, what is your take on where we're at here at the start of 2022? And just kind of take it away from there. I think all risk assets have suffered to a certain extent ever since the world started to become much more concerned about rate hikes. And Bitcoin was not immune from that, right? It wasn't exempt from that. And so I think really a lot of it is just macroeconomic in nature that We've gone sideways for a long time here. And so you see what that does to sentiment. It's not just Bitcoin. It's just everywhere in the crypto community. There's a lot of infighting, a lot of chaos and discord. I don't see that changing necessarily until it becomes clear that you know either the Fed isn't going to taper and they're not going to hike. I think it's really just a, a macro thing. At the same time, yeah, you know, Bitcoin is getting more, more institutionalized, more enmeshed into the world of finance and gaining more credibility by the day, the literal government adoption of Bitcoin, that trend isn't going to arrest itself anytime soon. But, you know, I think these are just the periods in time where you have to sit tight and, and, uh, and just wait for, for things to happen because, you know, we've had like a delirious year. It's been a crazy year and uh, it can't always be up only. But uh, I think most Bitcoiners understand that this is kind of a long haul type thing here. So, you know, patience is a virtue. And when we look at the performance over the last year, I'm doing this really quickly on a chart as, as I'm talking to you, it looks like we're up, what would it be? Close to what, 65% is what I'm looking at for 2021, which, you know, I mean, it's not a bad year, but I think it's not what everybody was expecting to see. I really like the comment that you just made that the broader market, is the macro backdrop is maybe what's driving this sideways action. And I agree with you on this. 
when you look at the fixed income market, like all the duration is selling off. Well, most of the duration is selling off, even though the federal funds rate has still stuck at zero. But when you look at the magnitude and the size of all, like, all those other durations that are selling off because of these uh, inflation prints that we're starting to get, that is turbulence for anything else that's you know when you're comparing it to fiat. So I'm assuming that's what you're getting at with your comment. Luke Groman says much the same thing. He thinks about stocks in a duration sense as well. If you think about like your your unprofitable tech stocks where you're discounting a lot of growth and a lot of the cash flows are coming in, in the distant future, those have also suffered. And uh, I think as inflation increases, it's not just that you know you have to more aggressively discount those future cash flows, it's that you just have less certainty about the future. You know, Bitcoin, it, for better or for worse, it's pretty correlated with those assets. You know, it it's, has a very tight correlation with like the flagship ARK Invest portfolio. And that was kind of something I was always a bit concerned about was, you know, Bitcoin behaving more like a Tesla than a gold. Obviously, I think it's, it's got combines qualities of the two, but that's the flip side of this becoming an institutionalized asset class, which is it is very accountable to the macroeconomic eddies. It's not just an asset in its own right. And you do see the correlations. Since 2020, Bitcoin has shown a positive correlation to risk assets. And uh, for better or for worse, that's sort of where we stand. Meaningful amount, especially during the sell-off in early 2020, but it's, it's remained positive since then. And uh, I think that took a lot of people by surprise. So when we talk about the fixed income space selling off, it's no mystery as to why. It's because we're actually getting inflationary prints in the basket that the governments are taking their measurement in. So first of all, talk to us about your opinions on this basket. Do you buy into the idea that the, the basket that they're showing you inflation is grossly miscalculated and to the benefit of the government so that they can keep issuing debt at very low uh, yields? Just in general, like give us a broad overview of your thoughts on inflation and particularly the, the inflation prints that we've been getting this, this past eight months. With regards to like CPI methodology, people like to make fun of shadow stats and the Chapwood index and so on. Those are really common targets on FinTwit for derision. I think the truth is in the middle, not to be you know both sides kind of guy or anything. Does the BLS have a clear incentive? and effectively a mandate to take a very sort of minimalistic view of CPI and reinterpret the basket in sort of a favorable way. Of course they do. Is it, you know, as egregious as some of the worst critics make out? Probably not. But I fundamentally don't believe in a basket of goods that can represent inflation. Inflation is a completely local phenomenon. So everybody's composition of spending is completely unique to themselves and their household. So, you know, a lot of people are indexed. I mean, people are indexed to different things. Like some people, the most of their expenditures go on rent and student loans. Other people, it's healthcare. Other people, it's their mortgage. It just completely depends. It depends on your real estate market. It depends on where your lifestyle is. You know, so I just, I don't feel that a single number can capture you know, the turbulence of the economy in terms of, you know, the purchasing power of your dollars. So really, the only honest way to, you know, interpret inflation is to construct your own index 
and looking at your own real estate prices and your cost of healthcare and your cost of education. And uh, it, it totally depends on your circumstances. I know that's not you know an, an easy thing to do, but certainly CPI is just not representative for most people. And if you look at what has gone up enormously, it's healthcare, it's education, it's rent. You know, those are incorporated into CPI, but probably with weightings that aren't representative for, for most normal people. So yeah, I, I think the the idea that you can compress this this economy wide output into a single figure is just preposterous. And you also have these like games that the, you know the press will play, like where one month they'll they'll pick core CPI, they'll exclude food and energy for some reason, they'll pick alternative indices, and you know there's like a half a dozen different inflation indices that they use, and they'll they'll selectively pick the one that's like the least that's increased the least in the last period. And and of course, if you have like a dozen or a half dozen indices, you can always, you know, pick the most favorable one. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like we're looking at roughly, you know, seven to 10% year over year declines in the purchasing power of the dollar. That's where we stand. That's enormously high. That's the highest in effectively living memory for most people. And that's incredibly destabilizing. And that wasn't forecasted. None of our economists anticipated that. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners anticipated it, but your establishment economists failed to predict that. And there should be a reckoning right now, but instead we have a number of deflections and denials and attempts to, to misrepresent what's happening. And I think people are seeing through it. I think people are, are fed up and they're seeing through it, but we're seeing a number of excuses which don't make any sense. It's basically nonsensical excuses coming from the White House, from the, the highest organs in our government. And it's just kind of obscene because the relationship is pretty straightforward and they're, they're trying to misrepresent uh, what's happening here. Let me ask you this. Let's say we could snap our finger and COVID would literally just disappear. Do you think we would still have the supply chain impacts that are happening right now, even if COVID was not a thing? Yeah, I think COVID was a very useful uh, kind of culprit or pretext. But um, you know, the truth is, if you look at the numbers, like the supply chain is stressed because there's a record demand shock. You know, the supply chains are functioning at capacity. People, you know, they, they take the pictures of the ships and they say, oh, look, you know, we're bottlenecked. We have these bottlenecks, our supply chain's not working properly. If you look at the numbers, the ports are moving record amounts of volume and cargo. So, you know, what's happening here is, okay, maybe there's some COVID-related restrictions, but what's really happening is there was an enormous, enormous demand shock based on these fiscal measures, which printed the equivalent of 25% of GDP in some quarters in 2020. I mean, you're looking at enormous outlays. You're looking at, you know, federal net outlays as a share of GDP surging to 30% for 2020, where the baseline was, was 20%. You know, so you're just looking at gigantic government expenditures, the likes of which have never been seen before, only comparable to, you know, absolute total war situations where the government commandeers the economy. And of course, those dollars are, are they're not financed by like foreign creditors. They're financed by the Federal Reserve. And, uh, you know, they make their way into the economy in a very direct way, in a direct to household way. And then those households 
you know, spend that money on stuff, whether it's electronics or cars or luxury goods or whatever. And then the symptom of all that is, oh, the supply chain is stress. It's at capacity because people are moving records amount of stuff around because the US government paid us all to stay home and buy our widgets and our knickknacks. Uh, and so, of course, the supply chain looks stressed because there is a huge demand shock, which originated with this uh, monetization of the debt. And, you know, that's clear with any data that you look at that, that there was, uh, you know, a massively out of the ordinary level of, of expense, which is kind of an ongoing thing now, it appears. And so, of course, that's stressed everything because you're, uh, on the one hand, you're printing dollars out of thin air. On the other hand, you're trying to buy real world resources, and the world can only produce so many of those resources in you know, a given amount of time. And there's only so many widgets and knickknacks that the world can actually produce. So all of the transport and the supply chain looks stressed as a consequence, and the prices of those goods goes up because there's more money searching for fewer goods. It's very clear that that's what happened. And, and I think if you just look at, you know, your chosen variables depicting uh, what the supply chain is doing, you'll see these various hubs in the supply chain, they're not operating below capacity or below where they were in 2019. In many cases, they're above that. They're, you know, they're doing record capacity. So I think the supply chain deflection is a pretty vexatious, almost a lie. I mean, I think it's really deceiving and it doesn't represent reality. And I think you're mistaking the symptom for the disease. And the disease was the enormous, enormous fiscal impulse. And the symptom of that is supply chains looking stressed. So, Nick, in your opinion, this isn't transitory, or is it? It's just depending on the policy response that comes next? Well, I don't know. I, I can't like commit to this not being transitory. I think the fact that the Fed has retired that term is enough egg on their face. Obviously, inflation is never transitory unless you're on the gold standard. Inflationary events historically were transitory in the sense that you would get deflation to counteract the inflation, and the overall price level would return to its pre-inflationary equilibrium. That's what truly transitory inflation means. In our case, maybe we're going to have a burst up to 10% that'll settle at 5%. That's not transitory. That purchasing power loss is permanent. You've permanently lost purchasing power at an aggressive rate. So it would have only been transitory if we'd experienced deflation on the other side. And that's literally what used to happen. If you look at inflationary episodes in, in you know, the pre-Fed US history, the US dollar started, I want to say in 1790, fast forward 120 years from 1790. And the dollar starts and ends at the same price, effectively, right? You have the same purchasing power at the start and the end of that period, from 1790 through to 1913. Of course, there were inflationary periods where it lost purchasing power, and then there were offsetting deflationary periods where it returned to the equilibrium, right? So that's sort of what happens in a non central bank system. The same is true of the British pound. There was a 200-year period where the British pound started and ended the same purchasing power, effectively. And so in a sort of non-centrally controlled economy, things tend to reset with, with uh, sort of benevolent deflation, deflation that's not actually damaging to the economy. But obviously, that was never what we were going to get. We were not going to get offsetting deflation here. So the transitory thing was just 
like a really sketchy kind of wordplay, I think, because the purchasing power loss was permanent. But, you know, if, if I look now, it's, you know, it's, it's a more of a question of looking at incentives. And I think the government's incentive is absolutely to run inflation hot. A, because we've normalized these fiscal expenditures and palliative handouts as a routine policy action. Like, who knows what we're going to get, build back better, something else. But it seems normalized that the government's role in the economy is fundamentally stepped up to a level that it's basically never been in peacetime. That appears to be politically normalized, frankly, on both sides of the aisle. And to reset our, our enormous uh, debt overhang, uh, you know, sovereign debt level, I think 127% right now, to get that to a more sustainable level, it's not sustainable right now, you have to have this period where you inflate away the debt. And you, know, you have to do that soft default. The, the choices are a soft default or a hard default. And we're not going to have some incredible burst of GDP growth unless we discover nuclear fusion or something. So the only way out of that is to hold interest rates low and have an inflationary episode, but one lasting a decade or more. That's how we got out of that pickle you know, in the 1940s. You had very significant inflation for a relatively long time. And uh, that's kind of the only way out. So I don't know exactly how that's going to be engineered, but that appears to be the political sort of mandate that's kind of unspoken that, that is generally dictating like policy outcomes. I guess when you look at where we're at right now relative to that scenario back then, it almost seems like we have compressed rates even more relative to the spending burden that we keep piling on top of it. So to come out of this in a way, like you said, at least a decade, it'd be probably more like two or three decades, how in the world could they possibly do anything like that with how quickly information flows and how readily available um, it is? I mean, look at us. We're having this conversation that's going to get blasted out to millions of people, and they're going to be armed with this, with this idea that you have a 400 basis point spread between the inflation rate that they're publishing, which isn't even probably the, the real rate, it's probably higher, versus the interest rates that they seem in hell-bent on pushing even negative in nominal terms. That's the thing which I think isn't priced in, basically, <laughs> is like information flows really quickly. And there's this ability to question official narratives in a really efficient way. And I think markets respond more quickly. Markets just act more quickly now. They're trying to anticipate the future really quickly. And Everyone is now aware they have these historical case studies in mind. They didn't live, they probably didn't live through the 70s, certainly not the 40s. Not a lot of people today, you know, have a good memory of what it was like in the 70s, especially not a lot of traders. But I think, you know, the, the realization that monetary repression is underway, that happens quickly, that happens more quickly, and people are able to be more dynamic. And there's also just more liquidity in sort of alternative instruments. There's more ways to divest from the dollar if that's what you want to do. And that's not just the case in the US, but that's the case everywhere. And that's where I think a highly liquid crypto market comes into play, which is to say everybody can hold their wealth you know, on their person without owning you know, bars of gold or whatever in a really e- effective way. And so they can you know, take the off-ramp from their, their state money system into an alternative 
system where they themselves have custody. That's never been the case before. So if you look at why Turkey, you know, has tilted hard against crypto as they've been in the midst of a currency crisis with the lira, that's because the crypto market, you know, poses a real threat to the lira, right? That's not a secret. That's clear. And I don't really think the dollar is under threat necessarily, but certainly people can desert uh, dollar-denominated debt and dollar assets, you know, quite efficiently these days. And uh, there's this, you know, informational economy which isn't gatekept in any way. There's no, you know, gatekeepers behind the scenes, uh, you know, on TV saying, okay, well, don't question, you know, Treasury's official narrative. Don't question the Fed's narrative on this. You know, it used to be just like three channels on TV, right? And and they were all sort of institutionalized. And now, you know, we have a much more direct-to-consumer informational economy. And I think. People like Lynn Alden and Luke Groman and, and yourself, like that is a way to get high quality analysis to regular folks in a way that's not completely subservient to, to institutional narratives. But frankly, you know, the establishment doesn't do itself any favors because they are peddling claims that are so obviously false, uh-huh, like the various narratives on inflation, whether it's supply chain, whether it's to do with monopoly power whether it's to do with corporate greed, like these are obviously false narratives and it's just a matter of pointing out why they're false. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about global policies and politics and other nation states, things that maybe you find interesting. I know we've, there's a lot of talk about El Salvador. Is there anything else that you see happening around the world that you think is worthy of highlighting? 
Well, the El Salvador case, as, as much as Bitcoiners talk about it, gets just very limited hype for how interesting it is. So definitely want to hit on El Salvador. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, I want to say maybe last month or earlier this month was, you know, two events in Myanmar happening at the same time in the same week. So on the one hand, you have the coup government, which is a Chinese-backed coup, which happened earlier this year. They de-dollarized their settlement currency. Uh, they went from dollars to Chinese yuan. And so I think that's just, you know, very indicative of the way the world is going, especially in the Chinese sphere of influence is de-dollarization. That's one trend to keep an eye on. The other thing that happened virtually at the same exact time was the opposition government, the shadow government that was deposed in the coup, adopted Tether officially <laughs> as their currency, right? A stablecoin, dollar-backed stablecoin. And these two things happen at the same time. So on the one hand, you have official de-dollarization and yuanification. And at the other, you know, at the same time from the opposition, you have crypto-dollarization happening because the opposition government wanted to raise capital from the Burmese diaspora worldwide. They needed an efficient settlement currency, but they couldn't be encumbered by, you know, let's say the Burmese banking system. They had to do something outside of that system. And I think this was such a telling little anecdote. You know, it's kind of two visions of the future. And it's what I would take to US policymakers that are thinking about stablecoins and think about the crypto market. They're very scared of stablecoins, US policymakers. They kind of hate them. They fear them. And they think stablecoins are a threat to the dollar. Some of them think that stablecoins are a form of counterfeiting, etc. But just look at this little example. You have, on the one hand, this secular long-term threat to the dollar, which is a competing currency and you know competing for global reserve status from a rising hegemon. And then at the same time, you have the dollar's reach is actually expanding through crypto rails, through stablecoins acting as extensions of the dollar. The stablecoins are you know backed by dollars and then they're issuing claims against them that circulate on blockchains. And because they are circulating on these, you know, credibly neutral infrastructures with no censorship, hopefully, depending on the blockchain, that is this frictionless way to distribute dollars to the world's population, to places that need dollars, and they need dollars in kind of a less encumbered way than sort of the good old US dollar in the, in the legacy system, which is very encumbered, very politically encumbered. And I just thought that was such a telling little story. And uh, that's sort of like two you know, two forks and like, here's world one and here's world two. And like, which one would you sort of rather? Well, and I think it's also a case that you're making maybe to US policymakers as to how important it is to not take a similar uh, approach that China's making with their yuan and that a person can use the coin and not have to worry about the government necessarily seeing every single or peering into the privacy aspects of it peering into every single transaction because it appears like they don't want to be in, encumbered by the Fed clawing dollars back. And so they're maybe using, I don't, you said they were using uh, Tether. So now they can get immediate clearance. They can operate on those rails. They know it's somewhat backed. I'm sure that could be a long yeah. uh, conversation, but backed enough that they're comfortable using it as their primary means. And they don't want to be using the Chinese yuan that they know has all these privacy concerns. So 
That's crazy. I I have not heard anything about this. I heard that they were using Tether, but that was the the extent of it. I haven't really dug into it. Yeah, they they apparently ratified Tether as an official currency. I mean, to the extent they have the ability to do that. Obviously, they're sort of out of power, so they're a sort of government in exile type thing. But uh, yeah, I I think the the greatest threat to the dollar would be the Federal Reserve creating a CBDC kind of product which is highly politicized, which takes these informal political policies which are implemented you know, through the banking system because there are political constraints to using banks, right? Like explicitly and informally. So, you know, you've had actual programs dedicated to politicizing, you know, the, the US banking system. Obviously, sanctions are one, but more insidiously and locally of stuff like Operation Choke Point, Whereas whole industries that were deplatformed via payment processors through FDIC and DOJ requests to the banks directly. So that was a real formal program. Now that's just institutionalized and it happens informally. So banks and payment processors know to avoid certain things. That's why the adult industry is always being unbanked because payment processors know that they'll lose their banking relationships if they do that, and the banks know to turn the screw on the payment processors because they don't want an FDIC or DOJ investigation. So even though it's not actual policy, there's a politicization. So there's, lim- there's sort of sets of things you can do with dollars and sets of things you can't. And it's obviously you know arbitrary and at the discretion of the state. And now if you have a CBDC and these rules get directly encoded into the physical cash that we use, you know, that's a really bad outcome, I think, because it's all well and good to say, well, you know, we'll just censor the bad people and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be fine as long as, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. But of course, like you're completely exposed to whoever happens to have power at that point in time. Uh, and so there's a good chance you yourself end up being censored. So, you know, the best thing the US government can do with the dollar is ratify stable coins and say, okay, we're going to give you access to the Fed window. So stablecoins themselves will be able to back their liabilities, back the stablecoins with Federal Reserve dollars, which they currently don't do. They only have commercial banking relationships and they own treasuries and things like that. Uh, so you know, going that extra mile and allowing stablecoins to be you know, on an equal footing with banks would be very powerful, but then not, not insisting on any political mandates for who can transact with a CBDC, for instance. So I think the best model here would be a public-private partnership where the stable coins get access to Federal Reserve dollars directly. And you know, they act as these de facto dollar issuers uh, and you know, subject to you know, various kinds of oversight, such as many of the stable coin issuers already are, to be clear that you know, depending on the stable coin, they'll be issued under the New York Trust Charter, or there's a Nevada Charter, or there's state money transmission, regime. So there's a lot already in terms of regulation there. The worst case would be a highly politicized and highly surveilled Chinese-style CBDC. And it concerns me that policymakers feel that they need to live up to the standards of the Sino-CBDC. Because when have we ever followed China's lead on anything? Just because it might be technologically feasible, why would we, why would we look at something the CCP built and say, I want that too? How does that make any sense? I think the argument, and I completely agree with everything you just said, 
I think the other thing that would be the pitch to policymakers is, hey, this is all about retaining a network effect. So what's your competitive advantage in the marketplace, global marketplace, for people to want to use your currency over the alternative, which has privacy issues? Well, you got you to gotta set up the model the way that you just described, where the, the government-private partnership that you have at, that, at the touch points is there. But beyond that, it just it can go in any direction, can be used by anybody at, at that point. And I know that that's, that would be maybe giving up a little bit of control that they have today. But I think the argument is, is hey, if you still want to achieve this network effect on a global scale, that's the, that's the one thing that you're going to have to give up relative to the competition that's, that's out there with much larger privacy issues and concerns. Because some other country will try to step into that role of offering this, the, the type of stable coin that you're describing, Nick. And if it's not the US, it's going to be somebody else that's going to start supplying that. And I, I suspect that the market would prefer that, that token or that uh, stable coin. And just look at the ratios. In terms of stable coins, the dollar has more dominance than it has in foreign exchange reserves ratios, right? So like in terms of international trade or an asset that's held by central banks, the dollar is somewhere between 40 and 60%, depending on what sort of metric you're using. In stablecoin land, the dollar is, I want to say, 95% plus of the denomination of all stablecoins. There's some euros, there's some, some yuan, uh, there's some rupias, but you know, really there's not a lot. It's mostly dollars, and that's telling. And you know, I think the, the pushback I often get from policy people is, well, you know, we want to retain our sanctions ability. We want to retain our ability to do sanctions. And first of all, I think the effectiveness of sanctions is very questionable. You can point to examples where they failed and caused a lot of misery. Second of all, I think it's kind of effectively cheating by thinking that you can sort of deal with problems purely through the financial lever without dealing with the problem in meat space. And that's, I think, why sanctions are so popular. It's seen as like a really cheap sort of hack and you can you know, fix everything just by by shutting off the banking system instead of having to go to war with someone. But also, you know, we've used, we've relied on them as our primary instrument of sort of power projection for so long now. We've abused our privilege as the, you know, underwriter of the global financial system that even our allies are now disaffected by sanctions. So our opponents and our enemies are actively building alternatives, and some have already built alternatives. Our allies are trying to build alternatives. When we sanctioned Iran, our European allies built a facility to circumvent the dollar so they could do business with Iran called Instex. Now, it didn't take off, but what does it say that our close European allies were themselves trying to build tools, ends around the US financial system because the dollar at that point had become so you know, politicized? It's not a good sign. So I think you know our sanctions ability has grown really blunt with overuse, and it's just not necessarily going to be something we can rely on forever. You know, and, and I think people are going to desert the dollar faster if, as a network, it becomes a a network where certain paths aren't available. And the way to reverse that is through ratifying something like a stablecoin. God, I love some of your points there. That is stuff that we need as many people as possible to listen to. 
you had mentioned that you had some different comments on El Salvador and you wanted to go back there. What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing there that maybe some others aren't talking about? So I'd love to see more scrutiny on the Chivo system, which is the public, the official uh, Bitcoin wallet. Now, the interesting thing that's happening there is that Salvadorian financial institutions are gradually adopting Bitcoin as a transactional tool. It's not that all Bitcoin-related commerce in El Salvador happens through the official means. Um, so it's interesting that Bitcoin has just become normalized uh, as, as a financial network in the country. And I'd expect that to continue and sort of to spread in Latin America, Central America. And, you know, I think that's a very interesting trend that hasn't received a lot of, uh, you know, interest so far. The thing I'm concerned about would be people that use the Chivo wallet have related to me that, you know, it's relatively easy to get Bitcoins into the wallet, but then it's relatively difficult to get them out. And the government is, is sort of custodying the Bitcoins on behalf of the users, and then they have sort of a Bitcoin denominated claim, and then sort of in theory, they can cash it out. Uh, the thing I would want to see would be, for, first of all, proof of reserve, proving that the liabilities are equivalent to the assets. Uh, that's a trivial thing to do. And then second of all, you know, I would be concerned that eventually the exit valve would be shut off or closed. And you would no longer be able to redeem your Bitcoin claims for Bitcoins, right? And there's no technological reason why it should be difficult to redeem your claim. Like it's very, very trivial. That's what every exchange does all the time. They're processing their, you know, the claims. And so I think, you know, the ultimate plan and I have no you know, direct knowledge of this, but this is what I would sort of look out for, would be to eventually cease that convertibility and end up with a situation where the government has accumulated Bitcoins and you know, fails to honor the obligation to, re- for, you know, to redeem the, the claims in the wallet for Bitcoin. You know, the structure of the system seems very favorable in terms of achieving that outcome. And, you know, obviously that wouldn't be the first time a nation state has sort of defaulted on its promise to, to redeem some asset for something else, whether it's a currency board or, you know, peso dollar convertibility or something like that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's what I would be sort of kind of concerned about with Chivo. How about you have some thoughts on the interbank settlement stuff that's happening down there as well. Talk to us about some of those ideas. Well, I don't know how you know, widespread this is, but to the extent banks are starting to use Bitcoin, certainly happening in El Salvador, I think what you might expect to see would be just direct bilateral settlements of flows using Bitcoin as that bridge currency, as opposed to the dollar. And you know, this ties into what I was saying before with you know, the dollar being this sort of highly politicized system with enormous sort of gating factors built in, at a certain point, if you're onboarded onto the Bitcoin network as a financial institution, it might be less frictional to use it as opposed to the dollar infrastructure that you're already on, uh, especially if you're holding Bitcoin balances on behalf of your users, which I think is going to you know, continue to be the case. So at that point, you end up with a regional settlement network based on Bitcoin as opposed to having to do your correspondent banking network where you do your various hops back to the New York hub. And, you know, that is something that very directly challenges the dollar and is a huge snub. This is all enlightening. 
It could be both. I think honestly, on chain would be you know more probably more conducive. But yeah, if you think about the structure of Lightning, it does kind of mirror the way that financial institutions have established channels with each other. It's just I don't know if Lightning can support you know significant volumes as of right now. This is what I would sort of expect to see develop in the next couple of years would be uh, direct interbank settlements in Bitcoin terms, whether Lightning or or base layer, frankly. All right. This question, I don't think you're expecting. What are your thoughts on Ethereum? Uh, when we look at the, just from a price standpoint, and it pains me to say this, the price has outperformed Bitcoin since September of 2019 to where we are right now. And I have my own opinions and I'm not going to express them from a technical standpoint of why I keep talking about Bitcoin and why I think it's a better solution. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Ethereum in general and why the price continues to outperform. And is this something that you think is going to continue to persist? And are there issues that you see with Ethereum in general, or is there things that you see as it it being beneficial moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the Ethereum price action has to do with new uh, deflationary or disinflationary mechanic that they introduced with the IP1559. That is a mechanism that takes you know, fees from usage of the blockchain and does this perpetual retirement of shares effectively of Ethereum. Uh, So it's like a business taking its revenue and doing a stock buyback uh, is what I would compare it to. And obviously the Ethereum shareholders like that and they like the commitment to, you know, a potentially deflationary monetary policy. I think Ethereum is suffering the effects of having done that because now the transactional experience on Ethereum is worse. And it's not to say that EIP-1559 increased fees, like it may or may not have. It looks like it certainly stabilized fees at a relatively high level. But the problem was that insiders massively benefited from that, right? Because if you have a group of people that primarily transacts using Ethereum, and then you have a group of people that primarily holds Ethereum tokens that are sort of the investors, those are different groups, they have different interests. What that EIP did was advantage the holders of the token at the expense of the users of the system, right? And so it may not have been a deliberate mechanic to increase fees, but it certainly meant that higher fee rates significantly benefited holders and disadvantaged users, right? Because if you're paying $200 to make a transaction, a lot of people are priced out at that point. And that's a kind of, Ethereum's always had this, you know, I considered a problem. Some people consider it an asset of this sort of solutionism, this sort of desire to tweak the parameters to get the perfect system and really alter key features of the system in order to you know, compete and show differentiation and introduce new features and things like that, which is, you know, some of that I think maybe is tolerable, but in the context of a monetary asset that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars, any change you make, it's going to have very consequential economic outcomes for the stakeholders in the system. And EIP-1559 is one of the most clear examples I've seen where it's like, whatever the technical motivations may have been, there was a very clear economic motive too, which was, let's change this system to a fundamentally deflationary one. And we're going to empower one group that is the key decision makers. We're going to disempower this other group. So Ethereum has this problem now where it has an enormous optics problem 
because the fees are just structurally high, and it's clear that the leadership has the power to determine effectively where the fees are. They can change the block space. They can do all kinds of stuff. And then there's other blockchains that are now competing on the basis of being more centralized and having more block space and lower fees. And they've actually done very well relative to Ethereum in the last year. And so, you know, that's sort of there in this weird middle ground where they have this ability to intervene and change key parameters. But there's these other, like, even more progressive blockchains, which, you know, are more aggressive about changing certain key features and, you know, having low fees and things like that. And so Ethereum's in this awkward middle ground where they're somewhat committed to decentralization and, you know, monetary credibility, but not so much so that they're able to fully compete with all this new breed of competitors. So at least, you know, as far as Bitcoin versus Ethereum is concerned, Bitcoin sort of knows what it is. It's very content to sort of remain that way. And it's, you know, monetary credibility is absolute. Ethereum is sort of somewhat credible, but not fully because they change the rules all the time. It has sort of a partial respect for property rights. The system changes a lot, so it has identity crises. And then it's always kind of trying to compete with Bitcoin, but also trying to compete with all of its other Ethereum killers. So it's a tough place to be in. Obviously, despite all that, it's done very well, but it hasn't gained the most important asset, I think, which is monetary credibility over the last year. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. 
Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. You know, beyond the, the 59 piece that you mentioned, making the monetary uh, issuance tighter, basically uh, quantitative tightening. They're also locking up, the, the ETH1 holders are locking up their coins into ETH2, and ETH2 is producing more coins that aren't coming onto the market, being paid in interest to validate blocks that aren't even you know really happening, like that whole, that whole ETH2 isn't even happening. For me, this is a little bit of the elephant in the room is can they even port ETH1 into ETH2 into this proof of stake system? Because it seems like every time that they're talking about like when this is going to happen, the, the deadline just keeps pushing further and further to the right. And it doesn't appear that there's an actual technical solution to something that is a massive undertaking from a technological standpoint to perform. So as we as we look at this and we look at like some of the mechanics of what they're doing to do this i i see it as just being concerning from a technical standpoint and maybe disingenuous as to what what risk is there and when it's actually going to happen i'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on the migration i think there's always an incentive to downplay the risks especially of a significant technological shift like that i just sort of assume the migration will happen it might be more belated than you know, might have been messaged initially. I think it will happen. And then the question is like, well, what does Ethereum look like after that? So then you have a proof of stake world. I don't think it was strictly necessary to move to proof of stake in order to implement most of Ethereum's agenda. Uh, it probably would have worked fine on proof of work, frankly. Proof of stake doesn't give you scalability. Uh, that's a total misconception. Proof of stake is just an alternative way to determine who is the authority to organize transactions and create blocks in the system. Uh, there's nothing about proof of work that's inherently unscalable, nor is there anything inherent to proof of stake that makes it scalable. You have scalable proof of work and unscalable proof of stake. So that's it's a totally different, totally orthogonal. But what I would be concerned about in a proof of stake world is what we've seen from a lot of proof of stake chains, which is the validation becomes pretty concentrated because owning a lot of tokens becomes tantamount to political power and discretion in the system. Which is how like all legacy financial consortia work, which is your influence over the system is a function of 
how large of a shareholder in that system you are. Whether that's SWIFT, whether it's any of the financial institutions like the World Bank, or whether it's a private company that has discretion over transaction selection like PayPal. So that's sort of the default model. Proof of stake takes you away from the proof of work model, which is a new alternative independent model, and it takes you back to the legacy model. So, you know, it beats me as to why anyone would want to go back to the pre proof of work, pre Bitcoin model, where all of a sudden now you have all these shareholders that can basically decide what's valid transactional validity in the system. They can decide on the inherent rules of the system. And so that's where Ethereum's going with this merge, which I think is unwise. Because if you look at Coinbase, they've a huge fraction of Ether between Coinbase and Kraken, Binance, and Huobi, you know, between the sort of top 10 largest exchanges, you're going to have a huge number of tokens held there. And that's fine in a proof of work world where owning tokens doesn't give you political power. But in a proof of stake world, it does. And all of a sudden, the exchanges and the custodians become these key, you know, entities that can actually affect policy changes, right? That's not just me sort of idly speculating. Like this has happened in proof of stake blockchains before. In EOS, infamously, there was a cartelization that occurred where the, the top validators were able to collude. In Steam, this is like an undercovered example, but in Steam, Justin Sun was able to actually commandeer the entire network by allying with, with the three largest exchanges where users held their coins. And, you know, the previous stake people always come back and say, well, users will be able to run a node and they'll be able to do this. You know, they'll be able to participate in these pools. Fundamentally, running a proof of stake node, especially with the requirements that are being messaged to us in Ethereum, it becomes expensive, very challenging technically to run a node. And as a regular user, you're not going to want to incur the risk of getting slashed, for instance. So you're going to delegate your node or you know, more realistically, you're going to just deposit your coins to a custodial entity that will stake on your behalf. And then it becomes like sort of a BlackRock situation where, you know, or Vanguard, where you maybe you hold equity and Vanguard manages it for you, but they get to vote on your behalf. You don't get to keep your vote. So it's not a democratic thing where the vote is carried through. Ultimately, you know, it ends up like any of these other systems where there's a principal and an agent and the entity that is custodying your coins gets to vote on your behalf, but they don't consult you. <laughs> you know, Vanguard doesn't ask me what my position on Exxon is when they perform an activist campaign to alter the board composition of Exxon, right? And it's going to be the same thing. Like, you will have exchanges and custodial, you know, staking providers that will be able to effectuate policy on behalf of the the individuals that have to deposit their coins. So that's the thing I'd be concerned about. I think there's enormous economies of scale in terms of running an exchange. There will eventually be significant regulatory barriers to entry where there will be a class of exchanges that are institutionalized and highly regulated, and it'll be very difficult to break into that. So, you know, that's the thing I'd be worried about is, you know, these custodial third party institutions gaining significant political power over these proof-of-stake blockchains. What do you say to a person from that camp that would then say, well, you're having the same issues with proof-of-work, with the consolidation of hash rate by these big companies and you know, the individual, there's no way they're able to compete with the, with the large company. How do you respond back to that? 
Yeah, my requirement isn't that like John Q. Public is on an even footing with like a large institution as it pertains to validation, because that's never going to be the case. There's always going to be institutionalization and industrialization of transactional processing. The question is, what is the competitive dynamic in the industrial validation industry? Is it very competitive or is it uncompetitive? Are there significant economies of scale or diseconomies of scale? Is it a market that's easy to break into or impossible to break into? And like, how fragmented is the market just empirically? Now, if you look at mining, there's constant churn in who the largest miners are. Right now, the North American miners are doing well because public markets have been good to them and they've raised a lot of capital. And so North America will be the nexus of mining. But mining is a very competitive market. All you need is energy and ASICs. And there's tons of ASICs floating around on the secondary market. They're very easy to acquire. And, and like, what are margins like, by the way, also, because that is an indication of the competitiveness of the industry. Mining margins are wide now, but at maturity, they're obviously going to be pretty narrow because anybody that believes they have an advantage can enter the mining market. Now, can anybody enter the being a gigantic crypto custodian market? Of course not. Like, it's already a very regulated industry and it's going to become increasingly more regulated. You're probably going to see federal regulation for exchanges. I would expect to see that in the next year. It's, you know, the compliance burden becomes your, your biggest challenge. Has there been a lot of churn in the largest exchanges, or have there been a few exchanges that have been the largest for a number of years? Now, Coinbase has been probably the largest crypto exchange since 2012, so for about a decade now. So these things, it doesn't appear to me that the exchange market has this dynamism. In fact, it seems very, very sticky. And so, you know, that is the thing. To me, the, inter- the sort of proof-of-stake validation marketplace of the industrial validators, that looks like a market with high barriers to entry, with, you know, significant dynamics which keep new competitors out of the marketplace, that are, those barriers are only going to get greater. And it looks like a wide margin business. On the other hand, proof-of-work industrial validation, aka mining, that looks like a highly competitive market, one that's laced with political risk, which throws the whole market into upheaval periodically. China, Kazakhstan, maybe certain United States, you see these periodic bans. So that throws the whole market into upheaval. And I think that looks like a thin margin business at equilibrium. So it doesn't seem to be the case. And and lastly, you know, energy is a sort of highly fragmented thing. There's not like gigantic pools of like unused energy laying around. It's, it's more you'd have to go after these small little pockets of energy all over the place. And so I think the dispersion of actual physical resources needed for mining is also accretive to a general decentralization of, of mining as well. So that's the distinction I draw there. What are your thoughts on Jack Dorsey's uh, web 3.0 comments about VCs. Well, I, I think not that he owes us anything, but I'd like to see him express his thoughts in longer form than, uh, than just Twitter, although I guess it's ironic to ask Jack to, to, <laughs> to use long form. But, you know, I think there's something getting lost in the message there. I think maybe uh, it's a very lossy kind of uh, transmission because on the one hand, I see his points, which I think the point he's making is if Web3 promises to disintermediate internet services and devolve power back to the hands of users instead of Silicon Valley, why is Silicon Valley so aggressively investing in the ownership of Web3? And I think that's a very good question is, 
if you truly believe this is democratizing power over the internet and pushing power back to the edges of the network rather than the internals, why are you acting as if you will be the oligarch of that new internet? Your actions and your words are, are contradictory, right? I think that's the point he's making. Obviously, I am a VC and we invest in what could be deemed Web3, but that's a contradiction I perceive, right? Is if we're claiming that users are going to be in control, why are venture funds investing in the ownership of these new protocols? So clearly, it looks like the legacy model a little bit. So I think that's the question Jack is posing is, to what extent are the narratives powering investment in Web3 like actually genuine narratives or are they contrived? And then I think the Web3 people are pushing back saying, well, you know, it's a fundamentally different model and end users will end up with ownership over these platforms. And moreover, just the very nature of engagement where you're using your private keys as your identity online, that is a more democratic model. And so structurally, you're disempowering Silicon Valley tech oligopolies. That's also a pretty fair rejoinder, I think. But yeah, I'd love to see that debate in long form because sometimes hard to tell what Jack you sort of really means there. Hey, so to, to wrap things up, I want to kind of go back to where we started, which was in the fixed income space. So I'm looking for a critique or a counterpoint of how you see this. But when I think about things kind of falling apart within the global economy, I think it's between the dichotomy of these inflationary prints that we're getting versus the yields that keep getting compressed lower and lower. So like right now, today, the last print that we had on the inflation was 6.8 here in the US. The 10-year treasury is at like 1.4 for a massive negative spread. I suspect that if that persists, call it for another year. Let's say we're at negative 400 basis points for another year. And the trend looks like it's maybe starting to separate even more than what we're seeing, where the 10-year treasury is going lower because it's getting manipulated down lower, and you have inflation kind of running even hotter. And that trend persists. What type of time frame do you think that it can continue to run with such a massive negative spread before the fixed income market starts to throw a fit or starts to say, hey, this is never coming back. In fact, I think it's going to be even worse the, the following year or two years from now, because I think that's when you kind of get the moment, the aha moment, and like the everyone kind of flips out and you start to maybe see the market throw a major tantrum that I don't know how it re- would recover because the response is only going to accentuate those trends in those opposite directions that make the negative spread even worse. What are your thoughts on that idea? Do you have a, an opinion on what time frame that, that would have to persist into the market before maybe it starts going a little haywire? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not an expert or even active in the fixed income markets whatsoever. I found it very curious, frankly. Like the question to me is like, why are treasuries being priced as if inflation hasn't materialized? Like, why is that the case? Like, what do they know? What does the market know that I don't know? Because it seems to be the case that anybody that's buying treasuries right now is signing up to lose money. And I don't know why they would do that. Yeah, as you say, like if you look at the numbers, like I was just running this chart recently comparing the three month T bell to CPI. And so you're looking at a, a negative real rate of minus 6.8% right now. And you know, if you look at the 70s, the worst it got during the 70s was, was about minus 5.7%. So you're looking at real interest rates that are as negative as they ever were in the 70s. 
And uh, if you look further back into the 50s, at a certain point, the 40s and 50s, when you had genuine monetary repression, you had a negative real rate of 10%. So we're kind of in that territory. We're not far from the most deepest and most aggressive monetary repression period ever witnessed in sort of the modern era of government. And uh, I've been kind of mystified by the fact that yields have stayed so low, because you'd like to think that that's sort of one of the most efficient markets in the world. It's a huge market, and the traders are presumably very, very well informed. So you'd, you'd imagine it's an informationally efficient market. So it's a bit of a mystery. And I think the only answer I can come up with is the market is buying these claims that there's a transitory nature to the inflation, that it's supply chain driven, that there's other exogenous factors which are influencing inflation, like corporate greed uh, is, is the new line that's being peddled. Um, I, although I don't know how anybody could believe that, frankly. But I, I, like, I don't even think Elizabeth Warren believes it. Or, you know, monopoly power, which is a very dubious explanation for inflation. But I guess maybe there's a market feeling that there's sort of core characteristics which are highly disinflationary, like demography, right? The, uh, the fact that Americans are aging, technology in theory, and that, the, you know, the, the economy is going to, you know, cool off a little bit here as this fiscal burst subsides. But my, my reaction to that would be, there's structurally inflationary factors at play here as well, which is the normalization of stimulus as a, apparently just like a policy on a, on a go-forward basis, with or without an emergency that warrants it. And very material stimulus, you know, significant fractions of GDP. Deglobalization and the actual breakdown of sort of trade routes and supply chains stepped up hostility with China. Like, if we do get deglobalization, that is structurally inflationary, I would say. So, you know, I think there are sort of these kind of permanent. And the other thing I would say would be a looming energy crisis, right? The fact that we've had such prolonged period of underinvestment in actual energy infrastructure due to political mandates, uh, political requirements that we underexploit hydrocarbon extraction, whether you think that's for a good reason or not, the consequence of that is going to be that we're going to be able to produce less energy than we were previously able to. If the sort of green revolution does not materialize, where you know this glorious vision of powering the earth on wind and solar, if that doesn't materialize, then we're going to have structurally higher energy prices. And energy goes in everything. It's how you make fertilizer, which is how you make food. It's how all industrial society works is like energy is the most fundamental thing. So if, as I expect, you know, we continue to have energy crises, that's also structurally inflationary. So I think we're looking at an inflationary next decade. And lastly, I think that's actually politically convenient for the US, even though it's probably costly in terms of the midterms. It's sort of one of those realities where you just get this enormous debt overhang, you have to deal with it somehow. And monetary repression is, is, seems to be the only way out. So Nick, you write some of the most shareworthy articles in the space, in my humble opinion. And somebody in the comments asked this question. They said, ask him when he's going to write an article critiquing fiat from an ESG perspective. I think you got a title in the making there that would be hilarious and amazing all at the same time. So I'm just going to plant that seed. I'm not going to ask you any more questions because you've been so kind with your time and doing this impromptu interview. I know I asked you kind of at the last second and you said yes. And 
I just want to personally thank you for coming on the show and just sharing your thoughts. I learned so much from you for, for many years at this point. So I just want to thank you uh, personally for, for coming on. Well, the feelings mutual, Preston. It's my pleasure, my honor to be on. So I appreciate it. Hey, you have your VC uh, company. You got Castle Island. And people, if you want to follow Nick, we'll have a link in the show notes to Twitter. I'm going to put a bunch of the articles that you've written that we were just talking about in there as well. If people want to check it out, I know your articles on energy are just phenomenal. Is there anything else you want to highlight for people to check out? Yeah. The only thing I'll promote would be my, my merch. This hat is a rejoinder to anyone that says Bitcoin is un-American. I won't name names. I know you're out there. Look, Bitcoin is as American as apple pie, okay? And it's important that Congress understands this. And so anyway, you can get this on thebrink.shop. I designed it. And uh, you know, I can sometimes be seen wearing the hat. I think if there's one message that I like to you know, promote is simply that America is the center of crypto innovation, Bitcoin innovation in whatever respect, however you want to quantify it, America's the nexus of this. Obviously, we're looking at a crossroads here in terms of, do we double down on this increasingly politicized dollar? Do we you know, surrender control to China's you know, resurgent monetary dominance? Or do we you know, go for a third way where maybe it's a little bit more difficult in the short term, but we just embrace the crypto markets here in the USA? And uh, I think that is the most prudent approach here. Uh, and you know, there's 140 billion dollars of stable coins outstanding. That's a market signal. The private sector has created this enormous settlement infrastructure for dollars, with no state engagement or you know, no state interaction whatsoever. Forget about CBDCs. Focus on what the market has produced right here in the USA, and uh, lean into that. That's what I would tell policymakers. So you mentioned on the brink podcast, which I know you are on and, and you put out amazing content on there. We're also going to have a, a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people that want to listen to more of your conversations and that's the spot where you can find it. So make sure you guys check out the show notes. We're gonna, I'm going to have a lot of links in here to just link you to all of Nick's stuff. And Nick, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.